Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks, with more than 85,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature. For Stuff Mom Never Told You listeners, Audible is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service. One audiobook to consider is Bossy Pants by comedian Tina Fey. Fey's story is a great example of a woman who goes after what she wants and gets it, albeit with pitfalls and humor along the way. That's Bossy Pants, available from Audible. To try Audible free today and get a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash momstuff. That's audiblepodcast.com slash momstuff. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we are talking about drag queens and drag. Yes, where it came from. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about some famous queens from mm-hmm. from way back in the day and, and some more modern people that you've heard of, like RuPaul. And I think that we should go ahead and say that we don't talk about drag kings quite so much, but we're really focusing in this episode on drag queens. Right, drag kings could be a whole episode unto themselves. Oh, yeah. Um, but men dressing in women's clothing in a theatrical setting has been going on for quite some time. Uh, female impersonation, as it's often referred to, goes back um, to ancient Roman literature. You have it in classical Chinese theater, Elizabeth Elizabethan theater. Since women were generally banned from performing on the stage, so the guys had to perform all of the parts. Right. And we've seen, uh, everybody's seen Shakespeare in Love, which shows... Not everybody, not me. Oh, Kristen, God, Kristen hasn't seen anything. <laughs> I really haven't. I tried to reference this morning. I tried to reference Karate Kid and it failed. Um, but no, in, uh, uh, what's it call it? Uh, Shakespeare in Love, they show, um, men on stage as women. But then, of course, they also show Gwyneth Paltrow as a man. So it's a really good example of everything. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> so, uh, if we look at the etymology of drag queen, according to the online etymology dictionary, uh, it originated, or at least drag, originated in 1870 theater slang, hmm. which I'd like to hear a lot of 1870 theater slang. Um, uh, drag meant women's clothing worn by a man, a man coming from the idea of uh, the skirts dragging across the stage. Interesting. Which doesn't make sense because you would maybe think that, uh, you know, men are typically taller than women. So wouldn't that imply that a woman's dress would be shorter? On a man, well, that you'd have less drag. He probably so shouldn't they be dragless queens? Dragless queens. Well, that's just a mouthful. But um, yeah. no, I mean, I'm assuming they made the skirts longer for gentlemen. Yes, long gentleman skirts. Um, and then queen, which can be considered uh, more of a derogatory term to describe a gay man, which has been around since the 19th century. And obviously since then, uh, in terms of drag queens, has the term queen has kind of been. What's the word? Um, reclaimed mm-hmm. in a more a more positive sense to to embrace it. Right. And then putting both drag and queen together, it comes into the uh, universal vernacular by the 1950s, which is which is pretty early, actually. 
Yeah, um, drag queens really, really flirt. They they kind of got their start, yeah, uh, for what we know them now to be in the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. And they really flourished in the 80s and 90s, which is also the time, I mean, if you think about it, that the gay culture really started to flourish right. as well. Because we have to mention that in the 1950s and 60s in particular, drag was definitely going on, but it was far more underground and even criminalized. Mm -hmm. Um, For instance, with the 1969 Stonewall riots in San Francisco, um, people say that the riots were partially inspired by drag queens, some of whom were arrested when the police raided the Stonewall Inn. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the protests in response to the Stonewall police raid uh, was partially led also by drag queens. Right. Yeah. They were just trying to bring attention to the total lack of civil rights, respect, Mm -hmm. you know, that sort of thing. One individual from the San Francisco area is Jose Julio Saria, a.k.a. Empress the first Jose, a World War II veteran. He worked at the Black Cat in San Francisco, which had an international reputation as a meeting place for gays. And as a result, police tried to close it down in 1949 just because of that. Um Jose was known for his arias. He he often sang opera at the at the uh, bar, and he kind of used it actually used the lyrics to warn people of potential police entrapment schemes through his songs. And this is something I did not know about. Um, Jose Julio Saria, uh, in 1961, filed as the first openly gay candidate in the world to run for public office. And he sought the position of San Francisco City Supervisor, which would be the same political office that Harvey Milk would win 16 years later. Yeah. Um, he did not, sorry, obviously didn't, didn't win that time around, but he came in ninth out of 32, which for the, the gay community at the time thought was, um, it was huge. Yeah. It was very significant. Yeah. Um, some more developments happened in San Francisco around this time. A lot more, um, there was a lot more of a crackdown by authorities on gay bars. Um, and after numerous San Francisco bars were closed, the Tavern Guild of San Francisco was formed, and they put on the city's first large public drag ball called the Bow Arts Ball. And it was during the third one of these balls that Jose was named Queen of the Ball. And he ended up, he, that wasn't enough. <laughs> no, that was not enough. He ended up naming himself Empress of San Francisco. And this sort of gave rise to this whole system of, uh, of, of, uh, LGBT, uh, rights groups mm-hmm. called the International Court System. So Jose developed the bylaws of the Imperial Court of San Francisco, but these courts, these groups have just spread all over, all over the country, all over Canada, Mexico, the U.S., and there are more than 65 chapters. And they spend a lot of their time raising money for charity. Mm-hmm. But that that imperial system is something that is common uh, within the whole drag hierarchy. Because mm-hmm. drag does take on a lot of different forms from uh, female impersonation, which is uh, separate from just straight, you know, the typical drag that we might think of that is a little more over the top. Mm-hmm. Whereas female impersonation is something like, uh, you know, someone who wants to look like Britney Spears and kind of own that um, personality. But a mm-hmm. lot of times with the events, it is within that kind of kind of court system. Right. Uh, which I think is kind of interesting. And going back a little bit in drag history, we have Alan Haynes, who died at the age of 90 in 2008. And he, I believe, was a British 
um, performer who teamed up with Terry Gardner, who had been a drag queen in the years leading up to World War II, at which point he went into the Navy. And then he rose to fame in the early 50s when he partnered with Danny LaRue. And what they did was something called uh, pantomime, which was basically the the British form, of early form of theatrical cross-dressing and drag. Yeah, they actually had 14 number one pantomime performances. So so they were pretty popular. Uh, Alan Haynes went on to open his own club in uh, London's Soho neighborhood after he and LaRue went their separate ways. And no list of famous drag queens would be complete without Dorian Corey, who actually died in 1993. Um Dorian Corey was featured very heavily in Paris is Burning, uh, a really uh, interesting documentary uh, about drag queens in New York who created voguing and drag balls. I actually watched a video of uh, Dorian performing the voguing dance. The voguing is amazing. And although I have not seen Shakespeare in Love, Caroline... <laughs> Look, I don't hate you. Hold, hold your horses because I have seen Paris is Burning. Uh-huh. Um, and I do highly recommend it. Uh, it focuses a lot on uh, the African-American drag community in the, I believe it takes place in the early 80s. And all of the different categories um, that they have in their, in their pageants and competitions are just amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the voguing on top of that, even more incredible. So definitely check that out. Um, and Dorian Corey toured the U.S. in the 1960s, uh, obviously before Paris is Burning came out as part of a cabaret drag act. And uh, an odd postmortem note here, mm-hmm. um, f- after Dorian Corey died, friends found the mummified body of a man in a trunk in her closet. Yeah, they went in to look for Halloween costumes, actually. And they're just going through. They didn't find anything they really wanted to use, but they found this dusty old trunk with a body inside that had been wrapped in fake leather that had accidentally mummified. I mean, yeah. Do we know the backstory behind it? Like how that? Well, the person, it took a while, but the person was finally identified. There was a bullet wound at the back of his head. Uh-huh. And the person was finally identified as this guy who had been known... Uh, as as a criminal, like a rapist and a mm-hmm. thief and all that stuff. And but n- there was nothing about you know if Dorian Corey really killed this person or if how this person ended up in the closet mummified. <laughs> um, one one person, one um, acquaintance of of Dorian Corey actually said that there was a note, there was some note that indicated that he killed. This person in defense or something, but, but it, it's all very, it's all very sketchy. Well, if anyone, if anyone has any insight into the, the Dorian Corey mummy body in the closet, let us know. Uh, but moving along, we got to talk about one of the most famous drag queens in Western pop culture. That would be Divine, mm-hmm. uh, born Harris Glenn Milstead. Yeah. She of the very arched eyebrows. Oh, yes. They're actually almost. Kind of scary looking. <laughs> um, yeah, she was a character actor and a singer who first became famous through appearances in John Waters films. And what I thought was interesting, I didn't realize that Divine actually grew up just down the street from I John know. Waters. I can know. you imagine? Can you imagine those two kids playing together? Like, what were they like as children? Uh, amazing, amazing. But yeah, you might know if you if you're not sure who we're talking about, you might know Divine as one of the lead characters in Hairspray. Mm-hmm. She's also in Pink Flamingos, Female Trouble, and Polyester. 
And I think that, uh, Divine ended up dying prematurely from some kind of a heart condition. Yeah. It was right, heart. Yeah. And it was right after hairspray came out. Yeah. Which really sent her star through the roof. Exactly. So that's kind of tragic. Um, and then we also have Lady Bunny, who mm-hmm. is, Another uh, drag queen that you've probably that you'd probably recognize. Uh, she is the co-founder, co-producer, and MC of Wigstock, which is an annual all-day outdoor variety show. Um, and she also pops up in just like random tabloid <laughs> magazines yeah. doing uh, uh, fashion critiques, mm-hmm. which is kind of awesome. Yeah, she was on RuPaul's Drag You. If you guys remember that, how could you forget? And speaking of RuPaul's Drag You, there's RuPaul. RuPaul. RuPaul Charles. Born in San Diego. Moved to Atlanta when he was a teen. Yeah. A delicate flower. Moved to Atlanta. I actually went to Northside High School. I don't know if that, that doesn't mean anything to anyone outside of Atlanta, but that, that's pretty cool. It's like more of a, kind of like a performing arts high school. Yeah. And, and, and Ru really got his start in, in Atlanta, mm-hmm. which makes me proud to say we are recording live from Atlanta right now. <laughs> well, not live. Yeah. No, well, but I'm live to us. Yes. Right now, not to you so much. Uh, and now that we are talking about RuPaul, the song, the 1993 hit, Supermodel, You Better Work, is going <laughs> to be in my head for the rest of the day. Yeah. And I hope in everyone else's head, too, because mm-hmm. it is fantastic. Yeah, RuPaul's been pretty busy with all all uh, all her TV shows, mm-hmm. Drag You and uh, what's the other one? Drag Race. Yeah. That's the other one. And I do highly recommend, if, if you have the time, to... Read RuPaul's biography on, I think it's RuPaul.com on, on the website. It's very detailed. It's um, hysterical. really interesting. His, Written uh, his, by RuPaul. Yeah, his personality totally comes through. I love it. I really enjoyed reading. And the pictures are fantastic, too. Mm-hmm. His prom picture from 1983 from Northside High School. <laughs> fantastic. Pretty awesome. It is. It's pretty awesome. Uh, and speaking of... RuPaul, we wanted to mention Manila Luzon, who won second place on the third season of RuPaul's Drag Race. Right. Um, Eric Zhang in the blog Racialicious talks about Manila, saying that uh, he actually he talks about how she portrays this pan-Asian culture. She sort of uh, basically his his whole blog is about is her personality, the way she portrays Asians, is it offensive? Mm-hmm. Is it okay to do it just because she's Asian? She's from the Philippines. Um, or is it still offensive anyway? And he, Eric Zhang basically says that it's funny. She knows what she's doing. You know, she's not trying to insult anyone. Um, but he also says that drag is inherently about the performance of gender and destroying the idea of masculinity. Yeah, it's a lot about, um, a lot about caricature. Mm-hmm. And when we started looking into scholarly analysis of drag culture and drag culture within the context of um, gender and sexuality, we quickly found out that the perception is not quite so uh, so clear cut, especially within the the gay community. Right. At least back in back in the day. Right. There was a question of whether camp is an embarrassment to the gay community, and how you know there are some parts of the community that really embrace it and think it's great. And there are other parts who consider an embarrassment, especially like Kristen just said back, back in the day, um, the Mattachine society, for instance, disapproved of it. Um, didn't think it was helpful 
to the, the cause and to acceptance in general. So this book, Inside Out, Lesbian Theories and Gay Theories, has a chapter on the politics of gay drag. And it talks about how the drag queen may be both a misogynist and be the victim of misogyny, just based on whatever perspective you are using. Um, you know, we, we talked about how drag isn't always accepted in the, uh, in the gay community. And a lot of, they talk about in this book, a lot of the, the masculine gay men looking at drag queens as, you know, just not part of the same culture mm-hmm. that they, that they are part of. And then there are feminists like Marilyn Fry who say that drag is a casual and cynical mockery of women. A lot of writers agree with her and say that drag is a parody and a hostile one. But at the same time though, I don't see, I don't necessarily see what the problem is with, with parodying, uh, the kind of femininity that they have on stage that is very, um, over the top. It's a lot of, right. it's kind of, uh, in the words of Andrew Ross, defetishizing, uh, all of the, the makeup and the glitz and the glamour and the mm-hmm. heels and all of, and the, just the general bedazzlement that is maybe imposed on women and, uh, sort of making a mockery of, of sort of the, the beauty, the beauty complex. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think that there's, I mean, maybe I'm, uh, not well informed. I don't think, I mean, I don't think there's a general perception of drag as being mean spirited. Right. I, right. you know, I it's mean, exactly. Generally, it's the exact opposite yeah. because a lot of times if you see drag queens, it's in a parade, it's mm-hmm. at a show, you know, it's raising money, um, raising yeah. awareness, things like that. Yeah. Or it's just plain entertainment, you know? Exactly. And so that's why maybe because our exposure to drag has has only been uh, in more of the entertainment realm. And Mm -hmm. especially now that drag is in more of pop culture in general, um, purely for entertainment. It was surprising to uh, to read this chapter on politics of gay drag. And this was also in 1991. Yeah. Written in 1991 by Carol Ann Taylor, maybe before. Well, obviously before. Um, drag had come into as much of the mainstream as it is right now. Right. Drag was super duper in the mainstream and still is in Sydney, Australia. Yeah, this was one uh, one hot spot I did not know about. I didn't either. I mean, I guess I should have known because I've seen Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, which I love. Um, but yeah, Sydney, Sydney is sort of a center for uh, drag queen culture, and it really flourished in the 80s and 90s. There was an article in an Australian publication that was talking to Mitzi McIntosh, who made a living for 20 years as a full-time drag queen. And Mitzi was basically saying that part of the reason why drag was so big back in the day was that this community of people were coming together for support amid Mm -hmm. the AIDS outbreak. You know, they were losing friends, losing family. And so they really came together to support each other. And she's saying that basically drag is on the decline in Sydney, even though it's still like huge, um, because maybe the younger generation is not as concerned with AIDS. So she says there doesn't seem to be that sense of socializing and community that there used to be. But nevertheless, I do think we have to, since we're talking about Sydney, we do have to mention that uh, during the closing ceremonies of the 2000 Summer Olympics, drag queens dress in original costumes from Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, your movie, Caroline. Mm-hmm. Uh, they reenacted scenes from the movie, which was the first open involvement of gays 
in an Olympic event. And there were, I mean, there were protests. There were, you know, um, people from the religious community who came out and said that this doesn't represent Sydney. You know, we're, we're about so much more than just drag queens. And I mean, that's, I feel like that's an overreaction because it's not like the entire closing ceremonies was just a drag show. I mean, mm-hmm. come on. But I, I think, you know, I think it's great that they incorporated bits of that movie into the closing ceremonies. I mean, if it's part of the city's culture, why not? And it's a good movie, so pff, whatever. And I think also that it's, um, I think that it's a positive thing that, that drag has come into more of the mainstream and that it's seen as a more acceptable thing to do. I think that it is perfectly acceptable to engage in that kind of gender play. And we also have to mention, uh, for instance, you know, like it's not, all drag queens just trying to dress up and look exactly like women. Also speaking of which we have not really mentioned drag kings mm-hmm. at all. Um, and then there's also skag drag, which is slang for um, men who will put on uh, women's clothes, but leave uh, on beards and things like that. Mm-hmm. Kind of playing with like visibly having the, the physical markers of being a man, but just dressed in women's apparel. So kind of like Eddie Izzard. Yes. Who calls himself the executive transvestite. <laughs> um, so I think, I don't know. I, 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 um, I don't know that I agree necessarily with that. I can understand that critique of misogyny, but I think, you know, considering that that was 1991 and it's now 2011, I, I would hope at least that we've moved beyond that. Right. And we were talking about, um, you know, the difference between drag that's, you know, it's doing it as a parody and then, and then, um, people who dress just as women who aren't necessarily trying to be right. like the big drag queen on stage. More as impersonation. Right. Well, um, Kate Bornstein, the author of Gender Outlaw on Men, Women, and the Rest of Us, um, wrote an article for Out Magazine called The Trouble with Tranny. And she talks about Doris Fish, who's San Francisco's preeminent drag queen of the 80s. And Doris took Kate under her wing um, and sort of made it clear to her that in the 1960s and 70s Australia, most of the male-to-female gender outlaws, quote-unquote, got their start as drag queens. And this is different from her experience in the 80s when male-to-female transsexuals just wanted to live their lives as close to being a real woman, quote-unquote, as possible and consider drag queens beneath them. And so Doris is taking Kate under her wing and... They're, it's interesting to see the different the different schools of thought mm-hmm. on drag because the older school, if you wanted to act, whether you wanted to just perform as a woman or actually become a woman, you sort of had to come up through the ranks yeah. of drag queens. Whereas in the 80s, it started to become more acceptable maybe to just like, no, I just, I mean, I just want to be a woman. Right. You know, and you didn't have to necessarily perform on stage as a drag queen. Well, and think about too the the risks, the legal risks of performing in drag or dressing in women's clothing in the, in the fifties and sixties. Like we mentioned earlier, perhaps drag was one of the only ways to be able to kind of act that out in Mm -hmm. public. Mm -hmm. Um, even though again, you were still risking a lot. Whereas by the time you get to the eighties, like you said, it was more of something that, that you could just, that you could do. Right. And slide, still have to slide someone under the social radar, mm-hmm. but, uh, but not have to worry about getting taken off in a paddy wagon. Right. So where does that leave us today, Caroline? Well, today we have a lot of women who seem like drag queens 
a lot of these articles talk about like uh, Katy Perry and Lady Gaga, oh, who yeah. are basically co-opting drag. Uh-huh. They're women who are imitating women, imitating women. Yeah. If that, if you followed, <laughs> if you followed that. But yeah, you know, the Mar- Mariah Carey and Beyonce both have sort of alter egos, mm-hmm. Sasha Fierce and Mimi. Yeah. It is kind of interesting. I hadn't even, I, I really hadn't thought about that as we were researching. It's a good point. I wonder why then, why, why there is some kind of need to co-opt. Is it just because we need to push even more gender boundaries in pop culture? I don't know. I don't know. Question for the listeners. <laughs> there it is. Let us know what you think about um, about drag queens. Anyone out there also who uh, performs in drag, either king, queen, skag, whatever. Yeah. Uh, curious to know your insight on this. Mom yeah. stuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address. And I've got an email here from Emerson. And this is in response to our episode on condoms. And he writes, I happen to run a gay porn company and needless to say, we go through a lot of condoms. Additionally, when we're stopping to CVS, the condoms are usually the least embarrassing thing we're buying. (laughs) As for the people in line, the looks are just as much out of jealousy as they are out of negative judgment. I mean, they're buying Snickers and seltzer and I'm buying condoms. So I'm obviously going to be the one having a crazy fun night, at least from their perspective. Anyway, my point is that no one should be embarrassed to buy condoms. First off, it means you're looking after your health, which is something to be proud of. Additionally, you're probably buying them in the interest of having a good time, which is also something to be proud of. And lastly, weirdos like me were there half an hour ago buying all sorts of nonsense, desensitizing the entire store. (laughs) Uh, So... That's what Emerson had to say about buying condoms. Good to know. Which is a good... Yeah, and next time you're embarrassed, uh, just imagine... Just think about Emerson and what he dug up to the cash register. This is an email from Angela about our Influential Lesbians podcast. You brought up Susie Orman and how she includes spirituality in her financial advice. I'm not a super religious person, but I do enjoy when she does this. I think it makes her advice more personable. It can be hard to wrap our minds around numbers and cold logic. I I agree, Angela. By adding the effects of money on our emotions and our spirituality, her advice becomes more relatable. Good point. Yes. Appreciate it. I agree. Excellent points from all of you who write in to momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And as always, you can check us out over on Facebook. Let us know your favorite drag queens there, favorite drag movies. Watch Paris is Burning and let me know what you think on Facebook. And do some voguing. Yeah, and vogue. Oh, my God. Can we all learn how to vogue and start doing it? Vogue in memory of Dorian Corey. Uh, and again, yeah, and if you have any insight into the Dorian Corey mummy, Please, Facebook, Twitter, at MomStuffPodcast. Let us know immediately. And as always, you can check out the blog during the week, Stuff Mom Never Told You, at HowStuffWorks.com. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks, with more than 85,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature and featuring audio versions of many New York Times bestsellers. To try Audible free today and get a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash momstuff. That's audiblepodcast.com slash momstuff. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?